Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, calls are growing to halt a $735 million U.S. arms sale to Israel. Peace activists greet tax day with calls to end runaway military spending. And a North Carolina district attorney says Andrew Brown Jr.'s shooting by sheriff's deputies was justified. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu continues to reject international calls for a ceasefire as fighting between Israel and Palestinian militants entered its ninth day. Israel reported dropping 110 bombs overnight on the Gaza Strip, the coastal enclave that is home to 2 million people. Calls are growing among congressional Democrats to halt an upcoming $735 million sale of munitions to Israel. More than 200 Palestinians and 10 Israelis have been killed in the conflict so far. On Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken confirmed that he had not seen any evidence to support Israel's claim that Hamas fighters were hiding in the 12-story tower blown up by the Israelis over the weekend. That building housed foreign news bureaus, including the Associated Press in Al Jazeera. You said that you've requested additional information. Have you received it? Have you seen it? And did you find it credible? Uh, I've not seen uh, any information provided. And again, to the extent that it is uh, based uh, on uh, intelligence that would have been shared with other colleagues, and I'll leave that to them to assess. Here in New York, peace activists marked tax day yesterday with a rally outside the Times Square military recruiting station. That was followed by a march to the Farley Post Office building at 32nd and 8th Avenue as people arrived there to drop off their tax returns. The protesters denounced the $750 billion annual military budget as well as the billions of dollars per year in aid that flows to Israel. This is one of the demonstrators. Our main protest is about the taxes that go to war. And of course, right now, with what's happening in Israel and Palestine, I'd say that's at the front of a lot of our minds is the billions of dollars that the U.S. has given to Israel that allows them to support this occupation and to uh, send in their military. Later in the show, we'll be joined by a group that is working to get New York's city council to speak out about the need to redirect military spending and put those resources to better use. Also here in New York, NYC Pride's recent decision to ban contingents of cops from marching in their big annual parade has miffed the NYPD and led Mayor Bill de Blasio today to label it a mistake. Last year, the NYPD attacked another Pride Day event known as the Queer Liberation March when thousands of participants arrived at Washington Square Park. Here's what that sounded like. After headlines, we'll talk more about No More Popo at the Pride Parade with a member of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, the group that has sponsored the anti-corporate queer liberation march since 2019. In North Carolina, Pasquatonk County District Attorney Andrew Womble said today that sheriff's deputies were justified in shooting Andrew Brown Jr. in his driveway on April 21st in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Brown was shot in the back of the head as he tried to drive away from the police. His family's lawyers called Womble's announcement, quote, insulting and a slap in the face. Video footage of the shooting still has not been made public. 
In Philadelphia, Democratic primary voters will decide today whether anti-carceral district attorney Larry Krasner gets a second term or a former prosecutor backed by the Philly Police Union will take his place. Krasner's upset 2017 victory heralded a wave of reform prosecutors taking office in big cities across the country. And finally, protesters from Triage, a youth climate organization, are protesting this afternoon outside of Governor Andrew Cuomo's office in mid-Manhattan. They are calling on him to enact climate legislation that would put New York on a rapid transition to a low-carbon future. This is Catherine from Forest Hills High School. We're asking Cuomo to pass the Climate Community Investment Act because it's going to be a step in the right direction in taking our future out of corporate greed and putting it in the hands of our community. We'll be back with more after this short break. And when we come back, we'll talk with a guest about the ban on police contingents at the Pride Parade. Ashkeen by Omar Farouk Tekbalek. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the ND's Editor-in-Chief. You can find our May print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. NYC Pride's recent decision to ban contingents of cops from marching in Marching in their big annual parade has miffed the NYPD. Today, Mayor Bill de Blasio labeled the move a mistake. Getting the cops as well as corporations out of pride has been a central demand of the unabashedly left-wing reclaimed pride coalition since they started hosting their own queer liberation march in 2019. Joining us today to talk about the controversy around cops at pride and how things are looking for the 2021 queer liberation march is Jason Rosenberg of the Re- of the Reclaim Pride Coalition. Jason, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. So uh, for starters, uh, can you give us your thoughts on uh, NYC Pride's uh, decision to, to ban the cops and t- uh, cop contingents until at least 2025 from marching in their parade? Yeah, so um, we see it as a a step in the right direction, but we also see it as a step of not acknowledging the harm that Prayers of Pride, a.k.a. NYC Pride, has caused. Um, They have long um, uh, separated us from meetings, town halls, and other demands that we have made throughout the years. 
they erased that from their statement announcing this um, step in the right direction. They've also not acknowledged um, in 2017 that they arrested 12 protesters in NYC Pride in 2017. Um, they had to step forward and to build trust in community, they actually have to repair that harm before trying to accept the trust of community members. Why do you think they made this decision? I think that it was, um, I think throughout the past year, there have been more and more demands, not just from us, but from other community-based organizations such as Anti-Violence Project, which is a long historical LGBTQ plus organization. And they saw different demands coming in different directions. They had no, no other choice. I don't believe that Heritage of Pride would have made this decision without the demands of different organizations, without the years of work of different organizers, including Reclaim Pride and other contingencies that are against cops um, joining in the parade as a whole. And what do you think the impact of this is, this sort of uh, public rebuke of the NYPD? Um, I, I think it's showing that uh, that community is the only thing that keeps us safe, that solidarity between communities keeps us safe, that we don't need um, the cops, we don't need the NYPD to keep our community safe, that we have the ability to, to rebuild and reclaim what community looks like. And... Um, you know, there's a long, long history, even uh, a recent history of cops harming LGBTQ plus people. This has long happened even, you know, for, for why Stonewall even occurred. That was against police violence. And then we still see protest of protest and even communities um, across the New York City area that the NYPD still harms queer people. This has never changed and this will never change in New York City. And Mayor de Blasio and Goal and NYPD have to wake up and, and realize that. We're, you know, we're not going to rebuild trust. There's no reform that will save us, that we can only save us and we can only rebuild solidarity between each other. I'll also mention too that there was a black queer man who was 32 years old, Kowalski Trawick. He was 32 years old and was killed in the Bronx by two NYPD police officers while he was in mental health stress. Um, this was that in is the a past black... year? Yeah, uh, well, no, this was actually in April 2019. Okay. But it was recently uh, shown that they did not get charged for his murder, the two cops, and they also didn't get any disciplinary leave uh, from his murder, too. So this is a really tangible thing that happened in our community that is being uh, completely silenced from Mary de Blasio and completely disregarded um, from the statement as well for the reason why cops should not be part of pride. Yeah. And, and just to go back into the past a little bit, um, you know, given the history uh, of uh, pride be, uh, being rooted in the, in the Stonewall uprising of 1969 against uh, police harassment and police violence, uh, that was uh, initiated by, uh, I believe, two uh, uh, transgendered women. Um, how how did the cops later become a part of the Pride March? How did that even happen? That's actually a good question that I'm, I might not know all the answers to. But I think, you know, Goal, for instance, which is the Gay and Lesbian Officers League, uh, they did face um, some type of discrimination within the police force 
And I think because of that, and I believe that was in the 80s or early 90s, um, I think that the the really moderate um, corporate pride that does happen and has happened um, kind of accepted them um, because of the, that discrimination. But, you know, as we say, um, all cops are not friends of queer people. It doesn't matter if they are, if they do identify as LGBTQ+, they're still part of the system that is oppressing queer people, predominantly black and brown queer and trans people across New York City and across the country. Right. And, and uh, speaking of that repression, uh, can you talk a little bit more about what happened at the end of last year's Queer Liberation March when people marched, uh, I think, from Foley Square up to Washington Square Park? Uh, this was in the weeks after the George Fo- or George Floyd murder in Minneapolis and all the protests that were going on last summer. Uh, we, we played a little clip of the confrontation that happened at the end when the police came charging into a peaceful crowd. But can you elaborate on that if, if you were there? Yes. Um, so basically we, we had a route that started, as you mentioned, in Foley Square, and we uh, marched to Washington Square Park. And actually at Washington Square Park, which unfortunately didn't get enough coverage, we had a Black trans-led um, rally that was happening, speak out, and people were speaking of experience. We had um, Cayenne Dorsho there. We had Lala Zanel. We had Black trans uh, leaders like uh, Sasha and Olympia Sudan. And this was all happening um, within the park, but then outside of the park, there was a complete escalation by NYPD cops that were happening right on the border um, of Washington Square Park. And there were arrests. There were uh, complete chaos because of the NYPD that wanted to disrupt our um, queer liberation march. And, and you know, I, I would also like to mention the title of last year's march. It was our second annual queer liberation march, but it was a police against police brutality. And... Um, against the police violence against black and brown lives. So this was, this was actually uh, intentionally focused on police violence. And it was also the 50th anniversary of the, the first 1970 uh, gay liberation pride that happened in 1970. So we are in a full circle of exactly what happened in 1970. You know, Stonewall happened in 1969, but this was the 50th anniversary of the 1971st pride. So there was a lot of chaos, a lot of distress, a lot of trauma that happened. I mean, people and were pepper sprayed right in the eyes. People were shoved uh, violently exactly. to the ground. Exactly. And, and, and the footage I've seen, people seem to almost just sort of be having a festive time in the uh, street uh, right next to the park. It wasn't like there was like this building confrontation that sometimes happens at protests. It went kind of went from zero to 60 out of nowhere. Yeah. And I mean, that that is what the NYPD uh that's tactically tactically what they do um they create chaos they um they push people aside um and they create this um escalation that should never be happening um and that's that's what happened last year and we are preparing um to make sure that we are safe and that we are secure with our marshals and with solidarity for this year's march Um, Because this is what we were, as you mentioned, deeply rooted on. Um, Even before the first Queer Liberation March in 2019, as I mentioned, we had multiple and multiple meetings with Heritage of Pride, 
We had town halls where we spoke about experience, people who are disabled, people that were black and brown. And we decided that the only way that we're going to reclaim pride is if we actually created it and reclaimed it. So this is what we're seeing in our third year. And we're really excited to take the streets again. Right. Is there any, anything else you want to uh, uh, tell our listeners about uh, this year's uh, Queer Liberation March, uh, how they can get involved or find more information and also what the route will be? Of course. So um, our march this year is on Sunday, June 27th. Um, we're meeting at Bryan Park at 2.30 p.m. And then we're taking off, meaning that we're, we're going to leave Bryan Park at 3 p.m. And our destination is Washington Square Park once again. It is a really important space and, uh, you know, physical space for the queer community. And we're going to gather there for a rally that we're, we're planning. It's going to be great. So uh, we invite everyone um, and we we would like everyone to spread the word. Um, this is this is what we're moving forward. We think that Heritage Pride has outlived their time. We're now in our third year and we have uh, two marches under our belt. We have over 50,000 people at each march. And we're we're growing and we're building, so we're excited to see you all there. Great. And and what's what's the website that people could find out more info? Yeah, so you could uh, re- uh, reach us at reclaimpride.org, and you could also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Queer March. So at Queer March. Fantastic. Well, Jason Rosenberg, thank you so much for uh, for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Okay. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break. Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, and you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find our May print edition in our red and white boxes across the city, and you can also find us online at independent.org. Uh, before we continue with our second segment, I want to c- encourage everybody who can do so to uh, give to and donate generously to WBAI. Help keep Peace and Justice Radio on the air, a community radio that's funded by its listeners. Help keep WBAI on the air 
all the uh, political and news and cultural programming that you get here. It's you, the listeners, that ultimately makes this possible. Uh, All of us who who host the shows, we're so fortunate to be on the air, but you're the ones who make it possible with your generous support. That phone number is 212-209-2950. Again, the phone number is 212-209-2950. You can also sign up at give2wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer, a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and become eligible for all sorts of uh, excellent benefits. Again, that uh, website uh, URL, give2wbai.org. And the phone number, if you want to call in your support, 212-209-2950. I'll be sharing that number again uh, later in the show. If if you can't make that donation right now, but definitely by the end of the hour, please help support WBAI uh, to whatever extent you can. All righty. Well, in New York City yesterday, uh, peace activists marked tax day uh, with a rally outside of the Times Square military recruiting station that was followed by a march to the Farley Post Office at 32nd and 8th Avenue, uh, where uh, many uh Hundreds and thousands of New Yorkers were uh, streaming in to uh, file their t- taxes and put that put them in the mail. Uh, earlier in the day, there was also uh, a protest and rally outside of City Hall, a coalition of groups uh, that have been organizing a Move the Money campaign were there uh, to encourage New York City Council to, to pass a resolution demanding that the military budget be redirected to meet real uh, civilian and human needs uh, here in New York, as well as the rest of the country. And this is a campaign that's happening in other cities as well to try to get uh, local governments on the record demanding that our bloated, destructive uh, war machine be defunded. We talk about defunding the police. What about defunding the Pentagon? Well, joining us now to talk more about this campaign is Tara Curry of Brooklyn for Peace. Tara, thank you for joining us on WBAI Radio. Hello, John. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, um, so first of all, uh, can you talk about uh, the event yesterday that y'all did at, at City Hall and 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 how that went? Uh, sure. This is uh, part of a, a long campaign, an international campaign, to for local people to demand that their local governments speak up and say that we are being impoverished because of the amount of money that's being spent on the military that we are, our schools are becoming decrepit, our subways are a mess, uh, hospitals are being closed. In this past pandemic, 12 hospitals closed in New York City. But we're spending away on, on the Pentagon. Now, last year, uh, the uh, 2021 fiscal year, the Pentagon budget was $740 billion. President Biden, for all the good he's done on domestic issues, has submitted um, a budget request of $753 billion to the Pentagon. That's a $13 billion increase. That increase is more than the entire budget of the CDC. So when you ask what is real security in the United States, is that money going to advanced missile systems keeping us safe when we're not funding public health? It, so it sure that, didn't feel that way last spring when uh, 
800 people a day were dying here in the city. That's right. And so, um, you know, this this um, this resolution was introduced into the city council. It's called 747A. It's resolution 747A. Um, its primary sponsor is Council Member Donis Rodriguez from Manhattan, from uh, Washington Heights. Uh, but it has uh, 23 council members, including public advocate Jamani Williams, who have co-sponsored it. And we can't get it to come to a vote because the speaker, Corey Johnson, won't bring it to a vote. The city council can get logjammed that way. It's really up to the speaker if things get moved. He's running for comptroller. You would think he would be very concerned about New York City finances and where the tax dollars of our citizens are going. Because we're talking about ordinary New Yorkers pay their federal taxes every year. How much of that money goes not to our city, but to the federal government? Of course, we need to fund the federal government. But the levels at which the Pentagon is being being funded is beyond all reason. The Vietnam War, at the height of the Vietnam War, we were spending $500 billion a year. That's in 2021 dollars. We're asking for 753 now. It's out of control. Right. And um, do you have any uh, any numbers uh, that you could share with us about how much in uh, actual tax dollars flow from uh, New York City uh, residents to the Pentagon? So about $29 billion a year goes from New York City uh, taxpayers to the federal government. So if you broke that money down, you could get, for instance, 1.1 million households with solar electricity and another almost $48,000 elementary school teachers and 65, almost 66,000 clean energy jobs, and 49,000 jobs with supports created in high poverty communities, and children receiving low-income health care. Oh, 1.6 million children for what we, we spend on the military. So you can see all the ways in which our people are being wronged. And it's not making us any safer. It's making us less safe. Right. I, I mean, President Eisenhower, all the, all the way back in the 50s, I mean, he gave the famous speech about the military-industrial complex, which, of course, we see uh, feeding at the trough here. But he, he made another comment about how like every expenditure on a on a uh, fighter bomber or an aircraft carrier or uh, bombs and weapons right. it was a theft, theft from, from ordinary people in need. That's and right. that... Somehow that that vision has uh, uh, been obscured or um, jettisoned a, a long, long time ago. Now, I will say that our Brooklyn delegation, for the most part, has been voting against the military budget. Um, Hakeem Jeffries is an exception to that. Um, but um, and uh, our new representative in Bay Ridge, uh, Malia Takis, will probably also be an exception this year, too. But uh, our other Brooklyn reps um, have been voting against it. But it's it's often not an issue for ordinary p- people. And that's why we want this city council uh, resolution passed. So it would d- demand that the city withhold hearings on this 
so that people realize when they go to vote how much of the the money, their tax money, is being diverted to the Pentagon. And the, as I said, there's 23 uh, council members supporting it, but the Speaker, Corey Johnson, will not bring it to a vote. There are two other resolutions before the City Council. Resolution 976 and Intro 621, which have been brought by the Nobel Peace Prize winning ICANN. And that would require that um, pension funds, New York City employee pension funds, not be invested in any company involved in the production or maintenance of nuclear weapons. And that an advisory committee be set up um, on nuclear disarmament and ensuring that New York City remains a nuclear weapons free zone. Now, some of you might be chuckling, why would anybody put nuclear weapons in New York City? Well, you know, when Brooklyn for Peace was founded back in the 1980s, that is exactly what was going to happen. They built a, bat a battleship uh, berth in Staten Island to bring in um, battleships with nuclear cruise weapons that were go was going to be in our harbor. So right. it's really important that people be aware of this. Right. And um, we just have a couple more minutes here. Uh, this is a, a nationwide effort. Uh, can you give us a sense of uh, other cities that are, are uh, pursuing well, uh, similar? Well, Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia has, has a similar statute. They've passed the statute. Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut has. And in 2017, the uh, United States Council of Mayors, of which Bill um, Blasio is, uh, is a member, they voted, I believe it was a unanimous vote, to um, that the cities should be holding um, hearings on where tax dollars are, are going and how they, the military is diverting those funds to the military coffers instead of the city. Bill de Blasio voted for that, but it's gone nowhere. Right. Um, so we, we have to leave here in a sec, but uh, uh, can you let our listeners know uh, where they can find out more information about the campaign and the coalition well, they, and, and yes, Brooklyn for on. Peace, which has done great work for more than 30 years now? Thank you. So Move the Money is on Facebook. Again, we're a coalition over over 60 groups. Okay. So it's, you know, uh, but you can find Move the Money New York City on Facebook. It's MTMNYC on Facebook. Brooklyn for Peace is brooklynpeace.org, all one word, brooklynpeace.org. And Peace Action New York State, which is also very active in this, is panys.org. And all of those organizations, they're great to sign up, sign up for our newsletters, and you will keep on top of what's happening in the fight against nuclear weapons and the fight against uh, out-of-control Pentagon spending. Okay, thank you so much, Tara Curry from Brooklyn for Peace and from the campaign to move the money. Thank, thank you for you. joining us on WBAI. Thank Thanks again for having me, John. Good night. You bet. Thanks for all the work that the Independent does. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, we're going to keep on doing our best. All right, we'll be back with uh, more after this short break, and we'll, we'll have uh, Ted Ham join us to talk about a Me Too controversy or scandal at the Riverside Park Conservancy and some uh, big name politicos that are. Uh, uh, touched by that. And also he's going to update us on a very important uh, district attorney race that's in its uh, home stretch uh, in Manhattan.
Down by the Riverside, as performed by Sister Rosetta Tharp. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, and, and, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour. We're on the air every uh, Tuesday from 5 to 6 p.m. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. And in our third and final segment today, we're going to uh, talk about a couple of matters with uh, one of the Indies uh, ace reporters, uh, Ted Ham. Uh, he has a new uh, piece up on independent.org. Uh, called Riverside Park Conservancy hit with sexual harassment allegations. And Ted's also been covering the Manhattan DA race for us, where um, there's a very rare open seat at the very powerful district attorney's office, the first time in in 12 years. And uh, we're going to talk about that more in a a little bit. But first of all, uh, Ted, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Great. It's great to have you back with us. So uh, you you published this piece on independent.org yesterday about um, a Me Too uh, scandal at Riverside Park Conservancy. Uh, Can you sort of give us the uh, thumbnail sketch of what's uh, happened there and the two uh, women who work there who really had their lives uh, turned upside down and uh, management is really sort of just uh, seems like it's stonewalling? Sure. So there's two different uh, but overlapping cases alleging sexual harassment against uh, the the conservancy from women who worked as gardeners at the conservancy. Neither of them is there any longer. Um, And they both told um, similar stories, at least in their, their lawsuits that uh, what they faced from the crew that they worked with on the ground, the grounds crew, uh, was the sort of sort of sexually explicit badgering harass that type of harassment that might you might find in a work setting like that um, sometimes and um, then also at least one instance of a direct physical uh, assault um, and uh, so this this went on for a while and the, the women two women uh, one who had moved to New York from Seattle Brianna. George and another woman, Lakeisha Johnson. Um, Brianna was uh, in her early twenties. Lakeisha was uh, ten years older or early thirties, uh, and she had come through training programs at the New York Botanical Garden, Brooklyn Botanical Garden, and also um, Brianna had done a lot of work previously in Seattle, so they had good training experience and so on. And they joined these uh, grounds crew to further their careers. Um, and they faced just a sort of, um, a hostile work environment and went, then went forward to, um, complain and didn't really get anywhere, um, in their, with their complaints. Um, you know, the, the, these are lawsuits, so you, there's going to be, um, pushback. And that's something that, um, I write about is the, the degree to which the, uh, conservancy is really, uh, fighting 
going to fight hard against these lawsuits. They settled the first one um, and one the, with Lakeisha Johnson. Uh, but one of the problems with the settlement is that it's not public, so we don't really know. So it has a non-disclosure agreement. Right. And and that's 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 sort of a point of entry into the uh, the bigger issues raised in the story is, you know, this is how um, power functions in the city. Right. So if you if you go to the park, you go to Riverside Park or you go to Central Park or many other parks in the city, uh, you know, you just may you may see a sign or two saying it's of uh, the conservancy. Um, that is running, holding events or hosting various functions in the in the uh, park, but you don't really think too much about um, the working the work crews and whether it was. But two 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 different work crews, and one might be employed by the conservancy, that's the private entity. And then the the city parks that they're going to there, there could be city parks department rounds crew uh, workers there as well. And so, depending on which you, which crew, um, who your employer is, as, from the gardener's perspective, uh, you have different recourse uh, when the union. One crew would be represented by DC thirty seven, one of the largest unions in the city, and then the other uh, crew would be non unionized. I mean, right? Exactly. That's a big. That's so. That's a major um, difference, and then. Uh, the, you know, the fact that you would then go need to pursue a lawsuit, uh, you wouldn't be suing the city. Um, as I said, that's, so that's not public record, but the city also has to sort of adhere to certain, um, settlement pat- patterns, right. In, in how they deal with lawsuits. Um, and instead now you, what's happening is, uh, the, Brianna George now the uh, the woman younger woman from Seattle, uh, she's um, retained a firm. Uh, uh, lawyer Rita Setti from who uh, is an attorney with Glickman Stoll, or uh, um, in Brooklyn firm, and now she, so she's going up against uh, a very powerful uh, Manhattan what's called a white shoe firm, a sort of top tier corporate law firm um paul weiss um is it's just best known as has several other partners but um and so they the lawyer there uh, is a partner paul weiss who's a friend of um the president and ceo of the riverside park conservancy because as we all know, a park needs a CEO, um, <laughs> and but that that person is Dan Garodnik, right? And that Dan Garodnik is a fr- uh, familiar name in city politics, three-time city councilman from the uh, the east side of Manhattan. Um, and then the board chair is uh, Micah Lasher, who is Scott Stringer's uh, campaign manager. Um, and, and I don't want to. And Lasher has sort of been a political presence up on the Upper West Side for. Uh, a number of years as well, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so you have these powerful political uh, figures, and then a powerhouse law firm uh, that is um, fully intent on fighting this case, um, the second case. Uh, and you know, so this you would think that 
um, well, there's more. It just really shows you how the, as I said, how power works, and you know, using the term neoliberalism, just in terms of uh, the private entities that now control public, um, what we formerly would think of as the public sector. Um, uh, yeah, let, let's unpack that park. a little bit more. Uh, these park conservancies that. Uh, sort of the pioneering one was the Central Park Conservancy, which I think was started by some very wealthy liberals in the 1980s. And yes. can you talk about sort of what the model is here and, and, and how, how it's set up and then kind of how it's been replicated in other places? Sure. So, yes, yeah, so the Central Park uh, Conservancy was formed in um, 1980 and with some real prominent figures, Jackie uh, Kennedy Onassis, uh, Paul Newman and others. You know, the, the elite living in, uh, around Central Park, or at least the southern end of the park, um, they were uh, wanting to sort of raise money for the park, but also have control over what happens in the park. And that's basically what these conservancies do, is they raise money for improvements in the park, but then they also... Uh, stake out what areas, what what can what can happen in various areas of the park, and what kind of events take place, uh, functions, parties, and so on, um, concerts and, and things like that. Uh, so you know they, they become another elite um, uh, philanthropic uh, um, organization or nonprofit organization, which you know being in the board is uh, gives you some being on the board gives you some sort of clout um, and connections and so on, just like many other leading nonprofits in Manhattan. So uh, then these they, they, these these organizations then uh, license, sign a licensing agreement with the city uh, that they will abide by city laws uh, regarding non-discrimination um, and so on, sexual harassment uh, in these cases. Um, but, you know, if are, are they really doing that? Um, or uh, do they use their power to snuff out um, any challenges uh, like the ones that are we've seen in these court um, filings here? So uh, and there's a lot, a lot more to the story. I think the, the, the story raises uh, some, some interesting questions about how um, the powers that workers have or don't have um, in mm-hmm. in these um, structures and so on. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting little window, um, right? And, and, and as one more aside, uh, they they resemble the the structure or the model here resembles uh, the charter schools in some ways. Those uh, privately, the charter schools get public funding, but they're privately managed and they're they're uh, teaching force is non-unionized and um, subject much more to sort of the uh, caprice of their uh, employers. Uh, is that a fair comparison? Are, are there any other I, examples that come to mind? I think so. Um, you might include business improvement districts uh, to some extent in there. Um, that's, uh, you know, because they, they sweep up their, their, plazas and so on um and but also then sort of regulate who can um, have access to that public space uh in in the process and so on 
Um, so, yeah, I think that that is a, a serious question. I mean, these are questions, you know, uh, our friend Reverend Billy has been um, on top of <laughs> on top of these issues for the last two decades. It's about the, the ways in which the privatization of public space is uh, particularly plays out in Manhattan. But these part these conservancies are everywhere. I mean, Prospect Park. Um, the Prosper Park Alliance. Uh, well, the, the other one I mentioned was well, there's, a, there's the Fort Greene Conservancy. There's, uh, I mean, if you look it up, there's 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 dozens of them. Uh, the Fresh Kills Alliance in Staten Island, and so on. So, uh, you know, this process is replicating. Um, and you know, and it's a question. I guess we'll see who the next mayor is. Uh, to the how much they want to challenge the power structures such uh, such as these um uh, you know you can sort of run down the list and sort of see who 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 might be the threat to any of these interests when when de blasio first came in uh, i didn't write about this in the story but when he came into the uh office in 2014 he was uh, trying to enact a plan to um get the conservancies to donate portions of their revenue um they, they raise a lot of funds so riverside park is about seven million uh central park is around 70 million um it's like he was trying to get them to donate 10 percent of their proceeds to improve other parks throughout the city i don't think that ever really i'm not sure whatever happened to that um yeah, but, i remember that at the beginning yeah he, the yeah. idea was to shift some of this uh uh, some of these funds out to uh, really, uh, you know, under-resourced uh, parks in the outer boroughs and in communities that had really been sort of neglected. And there was definitely pushback from these uh, conser- conservancies. And, yeah, it's a good right. question if, if de Blasio ever got anywhere with that. But we have just a few more minutes, and I want, want to talk about the Manhattan uh, District Attorney's Race, which you've been um, covering uh, um, extensively for the Independent um, uh, voting will begin in, in less than a month, and the primary day is June 22nd. So we're really in the home stretch here. Uh, can, can you first of all kind of talk about why the Manhattan DA's race is uh, uh, so important? What, what kind of what's at stake here with uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. Uh, retiring after 12 years in office and a whole slew of candidates trying to replace him? And then we'll talk about some of these candidates. Sure. Stand well, and Cy Vance is a. Um, that is nationally known and, and, and because of the high profile prosecutions. And that just is inevitable. So there's prosecutions involving Trump or not prosecuting Trump, uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn back uh, <laughs> 10 years ago or so now. Um, and uh, those, you know, inevitably catapult the Manhattan DA into prominence. Um, and, Anything the Manhattan DA might do to, uh, regarding reform certainly could set an example that would be followed elsewhere uh, across the country. So, um, just in general, that the, the prominence of that office um, is, is something is, is, is makes it quite influential. It's quite a prize for whoever um, of these eight candidates can actually um, win the election. So, um, yeah, they're, they're to varying degrees. Um, they are reformers and three are decarceral candidates, Eliza Orleans, Dan Quirt, Tahani Ibushi. Um, and then you have uh, uh, Alvin Bragg, who seems to have the most momentum now, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, he's left of center, but certainly not um, decarceral. Uh, and then Lucy Lang is sort of in the same orbit as 
um, Bragg. Uh, then you have uh, Diana Florence, um, and then two. She's a little bit in the center, and then two to two to the right. Tali Farhadi Weinstein, who has the most money. That's created some controversy. All the money she's raised from uh, Wall Street interests, and then now uh, Liz Crotty. Um, has seized the right lane uh, in the in the race endorsed by Ray Kelly uh, and the PBA uh, and company. So uh, she's running on the anti-reform line. Um, <laughs> right? Can you? Yeah, uh, definitely uh, a, a Trumpist uh, flavor with her. Uh, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Alvin Bragg? He's started to really sort of rack up the. Uh, a, a broad spectrum of endorsements and you just tell us a little bit about his background and um, sure how he, he sort of uh, gained this momentum. He, sure. He was a uh, uh, former assistant attorney general under um, Schneiderman. Uh, and um, he has a, uh, a wide um, range of experience. Some of the others have more narrow um uh, category, or, or categories of experience, I mean, but I don't, I don't, that doesn't mean that that does, that's hardly disqualifying. Um, but for example, Eliza Orleans is the only public defender in the race. Um, he is Bragg is a prosecutor with, but he's done white collar prosecutions, um, criminal prosecutions, and so on. Uh, so um, he and, and he's the. Um, He's black and he's from Harlem and he has the support of the black political leadership of Harlem. Uh, also recently got the endorsement of the Central Park Five, um, all five. Uh, and, and so Zephyr Teachout as well. Zephyr Teachout. Yeah. So he's got he's got the um, a, in terms of uh, figures in, in the legal world, Zephyr Teachout won um, in 2018. She, she lost, of course, statewide to uh, Tish James, but. She won Manhattan, so she has uh, a fair amount of clout there. So that's good for Bragg that she backed him. Uh, but he also has uh, Preet Bharara, who's not—I wouldn't put him on the left—but uh, uh, he's popular. <laughs> but he's popular um, because of his anti-Trump um, reputation, uh, and uh, so so he's got Bragg has this mix of different uh, uh, powerful figures backing him. Um, and then he's got the, uh, the most powerful, the leading unions in the in um, the city. Most recently, the UFT, the teachers union, has announced its support for him. And they have a lot of retired. There's a lot more retired teachers in Manhattan than people may th- instantly think. I mean, you may think Manhattan's so expensive the teachers can't afford to live there, but that's that applies to current teachers. But there were teachers who set up shop there in the 80s and 90s. Right. And so- living in Stytown and up the West side and other places. Um, yeah, we're down, we're down to our last uh, 30 seconds. Uh, just one last thought. Uh, unlike all the other races on the ballot on June 22nd, this one is not a ranked choice voting uh, scenario. You right. Am I correct? The voters are going to have to make one choice and. Right. That's a, inevitably going to be confusing for voters because, <laughs> but it is a state race. So the, the district attorney's office is a state race. So yeah, um, it's uh, at this point, it seems like Bragg has the momentum. The, the New York times endorsement is going to be a big um, uh, shift. Could, could be a game changer, but it very likely could go to Bragg. So uh, right. we'll see how that plays out. All righty. Uh, Ted Ham of the Independent, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. 
Thanks, John. Have a good evening. All right. And again, you can uh, find uh, Ted's latest article on the Riverside uh, uh, Park Conservancy uh, Me Too scandal on independent.org. And that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I want to thank uh, our producer, Amber Gagarian, for all her hard work, as well as Ken Lopez for uh, bringing us sounds from the street. We'll be back the same time next week. And please, if you can, give to WBAI 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or give number two, WBAI.org. It's your support that keeps community radio on the air. 